brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that shares your values. More information is available at CharityMobile.com. Recently, Francis again invoked St. Vincent of Larens to defend his introduction of novelties into the church, ecumenical dialogue on steroids, all these other things he's doing, when in reality, St. Vincent of Larens condemns the introduction of novelty into the church. He does. He's, he teaches the same thing all the doctors like him of the church taught, which is that we are to believe the same thing the fathers of the church believed. We are to believe the same thing the magisterial authority believes. The magisterial authority of the church does not introduce novelties. And so because he did that, I decided to bring to you this week the next part of the commentary as we go through this. And here St. Vincent is going to address the very basic problem. Why does God allow for heresies to be introduced into the church by men in uh, important positions. This is the first half of that, I think, that discussion. And here he goes over like Nestorius and other heretics. And some of those heresies will sound very familiar to you, by the way, especially if you've argued with Protestants online. And uh, St. Vincent of Larens was writing well before the, um, the Protestant revolt. So here is St. Vincent of Larens discussing why God permits heresy to enter the church. Why eminent men are permitted by God to become authors of novelties in the church. But some will ask, how is it then that certain excellent persons and of position in the church are often permitted by God to preach novel doctrines to Catholics? A proper question, certainly, and one which ought to be very carefully and fully dealt with, but answered at the same time, not in reliance upon one's own ability, but by the authority of the divine law, and by appeal to the church's determination. Let us listen then to holy Moses, and let him teach us why learned men, and such as because of their knowledge are even called prophets by the apostle, are sometimes permitted to put forth novel doctrines, which the Old Testament is wont, by way of allegory, to call strange gods. For as much as heretics pay the same sort of reverence to their notions that the Gentiles do to their gods. Blessed Moses then writes thus in Deuteronomy, If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, that is, when holding office as a doctor in the church, who is believed by his disciple or auditors to teach by revelation, well, what follows? And given thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass whereof he spake, he is pointing to some eminent doctor, whose learning is such that his followers believe him not only to know things human, but, moreover, to foreknow things superhuman, such as their disciples commonly boast, were Valentinus, Donatus, Photinus, Apollinaris, and the rest of that sort. What next? And shall say to thee, Let us go after other gods, whom thou knowest not, and serve them. What are those other gods but strange errors which thou knowest not, that is, new and such as were never heard of before, and let us serve them, that is, let us believe them, follow them. What last? Thou shalt not hearken to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams. And why, I pray thee, does not God forbid to be taught what God forbids to be heard? For the Lord your God trieth you, to know whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. The reason is clearer than day why divine providence sometimes permits certain doctors of the church to preach new doctrines. That the Lord your God may try you, he says. And assuredly it is a great trial when one whom thou believest to be a prophet 
a disciple of prophets, a doctor and defender of the truth, whom thou hast folded to thy breast with the utmost veneration and love, when such a one of a sudden secretly and furtively brings in noxious errors, where thou canst neither quickly detect, nor being held by the prestige of firmer authority, nor lightly think it right to condemn, being prevented by affection for thine old master. Here perhaps someone will require us to illustrate the words of Holy Moses by examples from church history. The demand is a fair one, nor shall it wait long for satisfaction. For to take a first a very recent and plain case, what son of trial think we was that which the church had experienced of the other day, when that unhappy Nestorius all at once metamorphosed from a sheep into a wolf, began to make havoc of the flock of Christ, while as yet a large proportion of those whom he was devouring believed him to be a sheep, and consequently were more exposed to his attacks. For who would readily suppose him to be an error, who was known to have been chosen by the high choice of the emperor, and to be held in the greatest esteem by the priesthood, who would readily suppose him to be an error, who, greatly beloved by the holy brethren and in high favor with the populace, expounded the scriptures in public daily and confuted the pestilent errors both of our elder brothers and heathens, who would choose but believe that his teaching was orthodox, his preaching orthodox, his belief orthodox, who, that he might open the way to one heresy of his own, was zealously inveighing against the blasphemies of all heresies. But this was the very thing which Moses says, The Lord your God doth try you that he may know whether you love him or not. Leaving the stories in whom there was always more than men admired, than they were profited by, more of show than of reality, whom natural ability, rather than divine grace, magnified, for time in the opinion of the common people. Let us pass on to speak of those who, being persons of great attainment of such industry, proved no small trial to Catholics. Such, for instance, was foughtness in Pannonia, who, in the memory of our fathers, is said to have been a trial to the church of Sirmium, where, when he had been raised to the priesthood with universal approbation, and had discharged the office for some time as a Catholic, all of a sudden, like that evil prophet or dreamer of dreams, whom Moses refers to, he began to persuade the people whom God had entrusted to his charge to follow strange gods, that is, strange errors, which before they knew not. But there was nothing unusual in this. The mischief of the matter was that for the perpetration of such great wickedness he availed himself of no ordinary helps, for he was of great natural ability and of powerful eloquence, and had a wealth of learning, disputing and writing copiously, enforcing in both languages as his books which remain, composed partly in Greek, partly in Latin, testify. But happily the sheep of Christ committed to him, vigilant and wary for the Catholic faith, quickly turned their eyes to the premonitory words of Moses, and, though admiring the eloquence of their prophet and pastor, were not blind to the trial, for whom thenceforth they began to flee from him as a wolf, whom formerly they had followed as the ram of the flock. Nor is it only in the instance of Photinus that we learn the danger of this trial to the church, and are admonished withal with the need of double diligence in guarding the faith. Apollinaris holds out like a warning, for he gave rise to great burning questions and sore perplexities among his disciples. The church's authority, drawing them one way, their masters influenced the opposite, so that, wavering and tossed thither and thither between the two, they were at a loss of what course to take. But perhaps he was a person of no weight of character. On the contrary, he was so eminent and so highly esteemed that his word would only too readily be taken on whatsoever subject. 
for what could exceed his acuteness, his adroitness, his learning. How many heresies did he in his many volumes annihilate? How many errors, hostile to the faith, did he confute? A proof of which is that most notable and vast work, of not less than thirty books, in which, with a great mass of arguments, he repelled the insane calumnies of Porphyry. It would take a long time to enumerate all his works, which assuredly would have placed him on a level with the very chief of the church builders, if that profane lust of heretical curiosity had not led him to devise I know not what novelty, which, as though through the contagion of a sort of leprosy, both defiled all his labors and caused his teachings to be pronounced the church's trial instead of the church's edification. Here possibly I may be asked for some account of the above-mentioned heresies, those namely of Nestorius, Apollinaris, and Photinus. This indeed does not belong to the matter in hand, for our subject is not to large upon the errors of individuals, but to produce instances of a few, in whom the applicability of Moses's words may be evidently and clearly seen. That is to say that if at any time master in the church, himself also a prophet in interpreting the mysteries of the prophets, should attempt to introduce some novel doctrine into the church of God. Divine providence permits this to happen in order to try us. It will be useful, therefore, by way of digression, to give a brief account of the opinions of the above-named heretics, Photinus, Apollinaris, Nestorius. The heresy of Photinus, then, is as follows. He says that God is singular in soul, and is to be regarded as our elder brothers regarded him. He denies the completeness of the Trinity, and does not believe that there is any person of God, the Word, or any person of the Holy Ghost. Christ he affirms to be a mere man, whose original was from Mary. Hence he insists with the utmost obstinacy that we are to render worship only to the person of God the Father, and that we are to honor Christ as man only. This is the doctrine of Photinus. Apollinaris, affecting to, to agree with the Church as to the unity of Trinity, though not this even with entire soundness of belief as the incarnation of the Lord, blasphemes openly. For he says that the flesh of our Savior was either altogether devoid of a human soul, or at all events was devoid of a rational soul. Moreover, he says that this same flesh of the Lord was not conceived from the flesh of the Holy Virgin, but came down from heaven into the Virgin. And, ever wavering and undecided, he preaches one, while it was co-eternal with God the Word, another that it was made of the divine nature of the Word. For denying that there are two substances in Christ, one divine, the other human, one from the Father, the other from his mother, he holds that the very nature of the Word was divided, as though one part of it remained in God, the other was converted into flesh. So that whereas the truth says that of two substances there is one Christ, he affirms, contrary to the truth, that of the one divinity of Christ there are become two substances. This, then, is the doctrine of Apollinaris. Nestorius, whose affliction is of an opposite kind, while pretending that he holds two distinct substances in Christ, brings in of a sudden two persons, and with unheard of wickedness would have two sons of God, two Christs, one God, the other man, one begotten of his father, the other born of his mother, for which reason he maintains that St. Mary ought to be called not Theotokos, the mother of God, but Christotokos, the mother of Christ, seeing that she gave birth not to the Christ who is God, but to the Christ who is man. But if anyone supposes that in his writings he speaks of one Christ and preaches one person of Christ, let him not lightly credit it. For either this is a crafty device, that by means of good he may be more easily persuaded evil, according to that of the apostle, that which is good was made death to me. Either, I say, he craftily affects in some places in his writings to believe one Christ, one person of Christ, or else he says that after the virgin had brought forth, the two persons were united into one Christ. 
though at the time of her conception or perpetuation, and for some time afterwards, there were two Christs, so that forsooth, though Christ was born at first, an ordinary man and nothing more, and not as yet associated in unity of person with the word of God, yet afterwards the person of the word assumed descended upon him, and though now the person assumed remains in the glory of God, yet once there would seem to have been no difference between him and all other men. This is the heresy of Nestorius. It's interesting when you hear the uh, heresy of Nestorius, how many times have you argued with a Protestant online who says that Mary was the mother of Christ, but not the mother of God? That is the heresy of Nestorius that they are repeating. I don't enjoy bringing you news like that, but again, Nestorius was not a Christian. And anybody who, who divides the nature of Christ is not a Christian. That is just sort of the way it works. There are reasons we recite the creed, and everything you need, the most basic things of the faith you need to know are in the creed, and so is the, including the unitive nature of God. It's interesting here because I decided to do this this week because last week Francis again quoted St. Vincent of Larens to defend his, you know, his introduction of novelties to the church when St. Vincent of Larens clearly condemns the introduction of novelties into the church. This is from his work, The Combinatory. You can find copies of this, physical copies if you want on Amazon or any Catholic book-selling website, probably. Um, I highly recommend getting a copy of it. I don't think it's too dense for most readers, but I could be wrong on that. Anyway, let me know what you think about this in the comments, please. Like and subscribe if you haven't. It really does help. It's just sharing this on social media. That helps a lot as well. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.